0: I'm Dave Monaco, the Allen Meyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. Well, as we enter the month of April, the last stretch of the school year is upon us, and so too is this final episode of this year's podcast season. For this final episode, I offer one more Parish Connection conversation as we wrap up Parish's 50th anniversary year. We welcome two more individuals with a unique perspective on the grandest reset in our community's storied history, the grade level and campus expansion of 2002. Mr. Dave Davies was the founding head of upper school and assistant head of school at the time of the expansion. As with Dr. Frederick Coates, from whom we heard last month, Dave was at the point of origin as the upper school program was birthed. Dave left Parish in 2009 to become the head of school at Deerfield Windsor School in Georgia and now serves as a consultant to independent schools across the country. Charles Hodge's daughter, Courtney, was a member of the school's first graduating class. and architect by training, Charles joined Don Epperson, another Parish Connection episode guest from earlier this season, and others in envisioning how the former Mobile International Research Station could be retrofitted to support Parish's expanding program. Enjoy this conversation, a final one of this podcast season with Dave Davies and Charles Hodges. Well, welcome back to the From My Angle podcast. As we come into April, in the last stretch of the school year is upon us. So too is this final episode of this year's podcast season. And it is indeed also a final Parish Connection episode as we wrap up the celebration of Parish's 50th anniversary, inviting two more individuals with a unique perspective on the grandest reset in our community's story history, the grade level and campus expansion of 2002. Joining us today are Mr. Dave Davies, who was the founding head of the upper school and assistant head of school at the time of the expansion. As you heard with Dr. Frederick Coates last month, Dave, too, was at the point of origin as the upper school program was birthed. He left parish in 2009 to become head of school at Deerfield Windsor School in Georgia and now serves as a consultant to independent schools across the country. Charles Hodges also joining us had a daughter, Courtney, who was a member of the first graduating class. We heard from four of her now-married classmates earlier this year in an enjoyable conversation. Charles is an architect by training and joined another of our guests this year, Don Epperson, in envisioning how this amazing mobile international research station could be retrofitted to support Parrish's expanding program in the early 2000s. And just learned this morning that Charles's niece is going to be Attending Parish next year, and we're super excited that the family's connection to Parish will continue. So, David Charles, welcome to the From My Angle Podcast. We're glad to have you both. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dave. So we like to begin with parish origin stories. Dave, you came to Parish as the expansion began. As one who's been through these processes myself of exploring a school as a potential next place to work, I'm curious when you visited that first time, what appealed to you, maybe even frightened you a bit um, about the opportunity that Parish presented? Tell us that, tell us that story. Sure. Well, I uh, was at a school in Pennsylvania
1: just across the river from where I grew up for 27 years uh, working there as a teacher and administrator, and I received a call from a consultant from the Education Group, a search and placement agency based in Dallas that I had never heard of, uh, which ironically now I've been affiliated with for four years as a consultant, Um, and she presented the opportunity to be a founding upper school head. I, I, I had no real interest, and as I said to her, I'd never even flown through Dallas. Uh, And so uh, she sent me the materials and urged me to call Gloria Snyder. Well, as everyone knows, Gloria could be quite persuasive. And uh, after an hour phone call, I was making flight arrangements, came down for a visit, And two weeks later, my wife Gina and I came for what felt more like a head of school interview for three days. Um, And the opportunity to create a division from scratch at a school that was embarking on this project for all the right reasons than out of financial necessity uh, was very attractive. Now, what was frightening uh, was that after working at a school that was 150 years old with plenty of predecessors to blame things on if it wasn't ideal, I realized that we were it. And uh, these parents like Charles committed their most precious possessions, their children, to a concept that was being created on the fly. So that was uh, pressure. I also have to say that Marcy McLean and Cindy Jackson were instrumental in my decision Mm -hmm. to come. Cindy, who I called Action Jackson, any of you who know her understand how apt that is. uh, She was on board as the upper school coordinator the year before I came and Marcy was then director of admission. And uh, Marcy and I took our act on the road many times visiting feeder schools. And just one quick example of how nimble and flexible we had to be was we visited Good Shepherd and there were a bunch of parents of eighth graders who had swimmers. And they asked about a swim team, which we did not have. And Marcy quickly responded that we had space for a pool on the Midway campus, although there weren't and probably still aren't any plans for an auditorium. Nonetheless, the swimmers came and without a formal team, competed in the TAP state meet their first year and placed third. Well, they came back with the trophy and I said to Gloria, I think we have a swim team. We better hire a coach and support them. So that's, that's how things went on the fly.
0: Oh, I love that so much, and uh, yeah, over overcommit and and then figure out a way to deliver. It sounds like it sounds like a perfect strategy. So, Charles, tell us about the Hodges uh, family's uh, introduction to Parish. Where where did where did you all um, bump into Parish Day? How did you find it, and ultimately, why did you decide to stay with the Parish Episcopal experiment that Dave was just ex- just uh, explaining?
2: Well, we were fortunate enough to know the Ware family, and of course, they had both Lauren and Ashley, the twin girls in the program. And we were exposed really from conversations with them as we began to search for a place for Courtney, who was coming out of the lamplighter system, uh, then to extend her education. We really felt parish just had that green feel that we were looking for. And, um, it just, somehow we were gravitated and shown the, the light, uh, to join the parish family. And it, uh, It turned out to be a very exciting journey uh, in the growth to the new campus and the involvement there. So Courtney
0: came over in fifth grade.
2: She did. I asked her uh, the other day what one of her most vivid memories were. And she said, well, when you move from a double wide at the old campus into this mobile research headquarters, it was a little
0: daunting. Yeah. I, I bet it would. That's where the that's where the seventh and eighth grade were in that uh, in that expansion transition year of two thousand and one and two thousand and two. So yeah, exactly. So I mean, great segue. You know, both of you—one an educator, another an architect—had this uh, first impression of the Midway facility. I'm sure Dave, view on that interview you were just describing, and then Charles, I suspect that you were enlisted because of your expertise to come. Uh, help figure out how to transition it to the school so first time you walked into the building Dave you like me coming from a very traditional old um, campus-based multi-building likely bucolic with grass campus like when you walked in for the first place did you immediately see its potential to support an expanded program or were you scratching your uh, your head a little bit Dave but you know, there's, there's nothing like
1: space. I mean, uh, we've all known landlocked schools and campuses and uh, there's not much you can do. And so uh, my first impression was that the building just had incredible possibility. With my former dean of students hat on, I was terrified about all the space and nooks and crannies that high school <laughs> kids could get into. Yeah. And thought there, there's no way we're going to be able to police this. So we better develop good character in these kids. <laughs> you know, Gloria and the board had entertained the idea of giving the fourth floor to the bishop's offices because they weren't sure that the school would ever fill the building. Uh, knowing the space that a high school program requires, and also realize that having the Bishop and his visitors just feet from a growing high school and all the potential snafus that could could cause, I was strongly in favor of keeping and developing the building for ourselves, uh, which which we did. You know, ExxonMobil left so much office furniture and supplies that we didn't have to buy desks, chairs, bookshelves, et cetera, for the first couple of years. And the fourth floor, which was the last floor developed in the tower, looked as if someone called around noon and said, folks, take as much as you can carry and leave the rest, we're out of here at five Uh, o'clock. One other quick story about the building. I was only there a few days. Uh, and a group of administrators invited me and Gina to watch the area 4th of July fireworks from the roof. Roof, The view was spectacular. I mean, we must have seen 15 different fireworks displays in 360, and we brought along chairs and a few adult beverages to enhance the experience. The next day when Director of Operations Ken Merton learned of our escapade, the locks of the roof were changed immediately, and that was the end of it.
0: The legend of Ken Merton still lives in the parish hallways today, even some 13 years uh, later, and I, I have done that now once to go up and see Kaboomtown Town and Addison from the roof. It is spectacular, um, and we don't have quite the uh, quite the draconian director of operations any longer, so we can even tell people about it, which is which is fine. But Charles, you 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 need to tell us your stories. Well, you laid your architect's eyes on what is a splendid building, but I don't know that you would have naturally said as Dave could see potential. You you would have naturally said, "Oh yeah, you can do a school here," or maybe you did. What what were you thinking? Well, it really was
2: a daunting uh, facility because it was just so large and so voluminous as far as the common areas. But uh, we rolled in and and Gloria unlocked the door and we walked in and. And uh, of course, the pressure of working on an IM paid design facility uh, was very exciting for us. But, uh, you know, it, the building offered so much flexibility and the opportunities that we saw uh, immediately, it, it really almost evolved itself into the first test fit plan that we did. And I remember that Gloria, many years later, she reminded me of the day we arrived at the building because she said it looked like a clown car. We rolled up in my suburban and I had seven architects from our firm with us. And she said, we kept getting out of the car. But, but uh, we basically just fanned out across the facility. And of course, in Uh, a building like that, you look for both the opportunities and the things that need fixing. And the the skylight was a perennial leaker. And so we had had to really concentrate and reserve money to fix the skylight system. But what a beautiful facility it is with that skylight system. And we had so much opportunity to use it and to light those hallways and literally the building just evolved naturally into the
0: school campus. Yeah, it's a, I mean, Dave said the same thing. It's just amazing. Not, I mean, not just the furniture that was left all over the place, which some you can still find if you look in the right spots or you can see on my wall behind me here for you two that are able to see it, the, 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 the red mobile um, uh, iconography, that the uh, Pegasus that still exists uh, around in certain places. But just the, the notion of how space evolved from offices for engineers and labs for chemists to essentially become uh, classrooms in a natural way. I haven't spoken to one person throughout this series of conversations this year who said they had any approbation, concern, or or, or confusion about how this would work. Only only a sense of possibility and wonder at the space. And so you all really share that in commonality. Your, your uh, team of architects that dropped in there, Charles, did you besides the skylights and elements did, were you were you the the group that ultimately said here's how we'll allot classrooms down the great hallway and here's where we'll put teacher offices in the tower did, were you the ones who sketched that out
2: yes um you know in working in concert with Gloria and and with uh, Don Epperson we basically just had brainstorming sessions and came up with the original sketch plans mm-hmm. and unfortunately we had such a short time frame to turn those into construction documents that we really had to go but it just was a natural progression of ideas and it I think it turned out personally I just think the building flows well and I think the kids were so excited when they were able to come in in that first uh, semester and and really wonder with what the possibilities were within the building.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, we definitely have gotten into that with Kevin Keith and Don Epperson, but also with the employees, like when we spoke to Kathy Perchurn and Frederick Coates, like uh, history, history should never lose a sense of the velocity of, of this effort. Um, it, it is really what makes it um, phenomenal, not just as that the school sits today serving 1150 kids and, you know, the, 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 the trebling of the size of the school, that was amazing. But, you know, this building was purchased in December of 2001 right off the cusp of 9-11 and and a lot of unrest in the in in the country and there were going to be you know classes that started first in those double wide you described at um hillcrest in 2002 as the expansion began and then dave and his team were going to start you know in two two years really 18 months 18 months later so how did you sort of stack priorities charles you said you couldn't even really get it to construction drawings can you can you unpack a little bit of like how you set a priority for an 18-month uh, retrofit of this facility? Like how that how that un, how that unfurled? Dave, well,
1: me, I, Charles, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the eighth grade started at the Midway campus in uh, 2002. That's mm-hmm. So, so that's seventh
0: grade, seventh grade stayed in the trailer, right?
2: Yeah, it was uh, it was amazing in that we had to basically divide the building north half south half and if you think about how it's configured along the grand hall all of the classrooms had to be formulated very quickly along the north half they they were blessed with beautiful north light right Mm -hmm. had tremendous natural light opportunities there and so it really we had to prioritize the north half versus the south half the south half had had all the chemistry and all the explosion proof containers and as Courtney said, those creepy eyewash stations. <laughs> it's one of the things that can't remember about Gloria's like that. But she said those eyewash stations were creepy. Yeah,
0: so, that's so great. I love that. They're still there. Yeah. yeah
2: but the point was now, uh, as Gloria said in the city council presentation, it was a building that was born of discovery and research. Mm-hmm. And so really capturing that same spirit for the kids as they came in and evolved through the various floors of the building, mm-hmm. it, it really had to be prioritized for that first class. And then we could evolve into the other areas of the building.
0: Yeah, right. and really at that point, it became where you were going to drop walls, effectively partitioning classrooms as you ran uh, east to west down the, down the, down that great hallway. So that was really where you all started. Did the chemistry rooms or the the labs as as they were for ExxonMobil, did they require much retrofitting or were they pretty turnkey for instruction?
2: Well, there were so many of them. We had to retrofit a lot of them, but yeah. uh, some of them were just repurposed right into, uh, you know, chemistry and science labs and, and, uh, I think the original chapel was actually a gathering place in that wing. Um, and we, it just really was a natural evolution. And as the kids moved through the buildings, the repurposing occurred even in the tower, we knew the offices had to go in the tower and the administration side, but the library ended up on the loft. It was a natural for the library on the North side. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the greatest challenge we had was really the assembly area uh, where the lunch was to be served. And the acoustics were so horrible in there that you're still fighting it to this day. But yes, we, we, are. Tried, we tried to do everything possible, but it wasn't acoustically a room that was a natural. So uh, it was really an adaptation of that area.
0: Yeah, that, that's so tr- that's so true. That's so true. And again, we talk about the velocity and compression of this. I mean, I, I I would say, Dave, like in most instances, if if you were to say to a group of educators, you're going to start the, the, a division of a school or start a school, you would say, here's 12 months. Go lock yourself in a room and figure this out. And when I was talking to Frederick and the others, you know, realize that they saw you in August. I suspect you arrived with Gina June. Like how long how long did you how long did you have and you walked up to I guess to the third floor and looked around and what it, what were you having to get pulled together to get the upper school obviously a smaller upper school by by all measure but still nevertheless like what did you have to get get done
1: Well you know Parrish made the incredibly wise decision to grow the upper school one grade at a time and this decision was made before I came on board but it's one that I've recommended to other schools looking to expand However, it meant that we were constantly planning the next year, the next lab, the next art studio at the same time we were running the school. Um, When I was still back in Pennsylvania anticipating coming, um, I had uh, conversations with the architects to talk about the program and what we would need. And I weighed in on the first upper school science classroom slash lab, which I firmly believed should be in the same room so the teacher could go back and forth from classroom to lab. And I suggested dividing it in half lengthwise, which they did. And I got there in July and walked into the lab and thought, oh, my gosh. This is 90 degrees the wrong way. So you probably still have that first lab, which was physics, divided lengthwise. But the other ones that we did after that, we divided widthwise. And oh, that's I guess so that, interesting. That, that's why oh, I'm that's an educator so well. rather than architect, I
0: guess. Oh, that's that's fascinating. And it tells you how hard it is to plant something like this from a couple thousand miles away. Right. And, you know, we had to be accredited each year
1: for the upcoming grade level. And having accreditors come every single year started to feel like the movie Groundhog Day. I mean, they were, it's usually five years or 10 years. They were there every single year. I will say the founding faculty were incredible. Uh, and took much of the load in planning the program. Uh, Most of them, not all, but most came from public school backgrounds. And there was one meeting where I was frustrated with them for not speaking up and voicing their opinions. And after the meeting, uh, Sammy Clay, who was our first English teacher pulled me aside and she said, you really seem like you want our opinions. And I said, well, yeah, I wouldn't ask if I didn't. She said, you have to realize that some of us worked for 30 years in an environment where our opinions weren't wanted. if we voiced them, we'd be reprimanded. It's wow. going to take us a while to come around, which wow. they did. And uh, they planned the whole curriculum, uh, that first group of, of faculty. And then as we hired, you know, people lived into that curriculum.
0: Yeah. unique, Uniquely, somewhat for it being a, 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 a an independent Episcopal school, uh, that, that founding faculty was, prepond, was preponderly at maybe exclusively public school folks. So to your point around uh, culture and, uh, organizational co- culture and, 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 um, collaboration. That's why Sammy was, was, uh, was hesitant, you know, so that, the first two classes
1: of faculty were pretty senior, not every one of them. And we felt we needed that right. anybody who could teach from ninth grade up through AP. Yeah. But after the second year, I started looking around thinking, we need some younger role models, comfortable yeah. with technology. And so we did. And so over four years, we had a pretty good balance. But uh, I, I think I was the, the junior man except for one those first two years.
0: Yeah, and so I'm. I mean, Dave alluded to it in his in his opening reflections about um, you, you know the, the the pioneering spirit of the of the folks that came, and then really the heroic efforts of the faculty with the expansion. But I I feel like in this uh, parish connection series over the course of the last nine months, the people that I haven't spoken well enough to are these pioneering parents, and it's apropos you know with Charles here to um, to dig into this a little bit. So. I mean, Charles, you put in likely hundreds of volunteer hours, you, you know, as a parish volunteer to get the facility ready. But, you know, you were also a member of this parent cohort um, who, as Dave said in the open, were entrusting their children to this, you know, really nascent and unproven high school program, like probably love parish and parish, their parish day experience. So like, what do you recall, like around the cocktail parties and the the parent networks on the soccer sidelines and whatever? Like, what do you recall about the tenor of your fellow parish um, class of 2007 parents? Um, unabashed excitement, uh, a lot of trepidation, a little a mix of both. Like, what do you recall, if anything?
2: I think the excitement value was something that carried through and and really translated into the children. Mm. The kids sort of shared that pioneering spirit with us as much as we shared our excitement for the new campus with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the one thing that we were thrusting those kids into was really a role of leadership because they were gonna be the leaders for the entire evolution of the upper school. Mm-hmm. And I think they took that responsibility very well and they were excited about that. And I noticed that, uh, you know, as Courtney and her class got to the upper levels, they took on a mentoring role for the kids that were you know coming out of parish day and coming into that campus and they really mentored them so i think the leadership that was thrust on them uh, you know through the pioneering effort of being the first graduating class was a really positive attitude i think the parents recognized that we talked about it and i think it was beneficial for both the kids and the parents to kind of wade into this new uncharted waters mm-hmm. of, of the new campus. So it was a positive experience all the way through.
0: Yeah, that's really great to hear. And I don't know, it may be, it may be the, the mix of old age and, and, and cynicism, but I, I don't know, Dave, like you're an educator, like my, like I am lifelong. And, and I, I wonder about doing this now in 2022. And I wonder if a cohort of parents, you know, it's only 15 years later, but I feel like the world has changed in midst how anxious parents and kids continue to be about college placement and, and social positioning and, and, and the like. And I wonder if you could replicate such an exuberance in, uh, in a founding group of parents like that again, or, or students for that matter. Maybe the students would be easier, but I wonder, do you think that could happen again or, or, or am I just uh, cynical? No, I don't think so. Uh, I
1: have been told that one of the factors in Parrish's decision to pull the trigger on this project when they did was that cohort of parents. Uh, There was a commitment. We kept 24 out of 28 eighth graders into that ninth grade, and then we added 26 new kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were committed. They were wonderful to work with. Uh, It was funny. We did have to socialize the kids into what it meant to be high schoolers, because there weren't juniors and seniors around to tell them how high schoolers are supposed to act. Yeah. And those ninth graders, especially the boys—and if you're listening, you know who you are—we're uh, <laughs> definitely misplaced middle schoolers. I mean, running down the hall, right. tackling each other. I yeah. spent 27 years in high school, and I said, "Don't oh, do 10%. this." But. Um, The parents, for the most part, were first time high school parents. And we had to help them understand what that meant. I had three moms come to my office before the first dance and say, "Uh, we wanna sign up to be chaperones. And I said, no, we don't use parent chaperones in high school. And they said, what do you mean we've always chaperoned? I said, well, not anymore, we've got this. Um, But that group was almost like brothers and sisters. And uh, at times they got tired of the same group. After our first ever high school dance, a couple of them came to me and said, could we partner with another school just for some new scenery? And and we did, we had a combined dance with the Green Hill freshmen. Um, but you know, Charles mentioned the leadership and we really emphasized the significance of that. And they rose to the challenge. We could have imposed an honor code and an honor council since many of us had been at schools and had it, but instead Frederick Holtz and I decided we would educate them and help them develop the honor code and the honor council. And um, and, and they did, and I knew it worked. When Courtney and her class were juniors or seniors and I was walking through the student commons and some new freshmen said hey I didn't do my math homework can I borrow your homework, and one of the upperclassmen said oh we don't do that here. I thought, yeah. It- it worked, But you know, it was a little bit like camp uh, that first year. There were only 50 of them, five full-time teachers. I could walk down the hall and say, uh, upper school meeting in 30 minutes in the commons and just shout it out. And, and there they were. By the time I left, when there were 400 yeah. in the high school, you couldn't do that anymore.
0: Yeah, a, wonder, a wonderful intimacy and such a special experience for that founding cohort at our 50th anniversary gala um, several weeks ago. Yeah, we, we showed a 10 minute video and, and it profiled for close to three minutes, a, a collection of that class of 2007 and Courtney was in the video and, um, you know, they spoke to this experience that you're describing, Dave, and its uniqueness. And, you know, the, the fact that even under-resourced, because they just didn't have what other schools had, right, that they still found contentment and, and joy and, uh, and, and excitement uh, because of the opportunity they had in front of them. I think is is what makes them and their parents as the pioneer um, group of, of parish Episcopal students, um, uh, legendary, like they'll carry that forever um, as the folks that made this, uh, you know, has made this possible. What other vivid memories do you have from that first year in the high school? Charles, do you, do you, does something sear in your mind from, um, you know, that, that, that year, the opening of the year or any, any images that, that come to your mind? Well, <laughs> the noise level in the cafeteria.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's right. If you were to ask Courtney, she would say, Dr. Holtz singing the announcements every day. She wow. said, you don't find that anywhere else. <laughs> How
0: about that? I know but I need to bring that up with him.
2: I really, you, you do. But, uh, you know, I think the the first year, the fact that there were only 50 of them and the fact that it was a pioneering class it was also a pioneering faculty in that um, they gave the kids so much guidance and so much advice. And Dr. Holtz was Courtney's advisor through four years. So he, he just left an indelible mark on her. Hmm. So I think the kids got, quite frankly, some focus from the faculty. And I
0: remember that the most. That's really wonderful. How about you, Dave? I'm sure you got so many, but which ones continue to to bubble to the top? Well, you know, Parish
1: was an elementary school uh, in its culture, even when they added the seventh and eighth grade, uh, because they spent so much time on the the, uh, Hillcrest campus Mm -hmm. and the faculty thought like elementary school teachers. And so I was in a meeting and uh, very early on, and I said, have we decided where the students are going to park? And it was dead silence and somebody finally laughed and said, oh, Paris students don't drive. I said, they will by the end of this first freshman year. Um, and then I had a, a third grade teacher say to me, Mr. Davies, I'm concerned about the stairwells. And I thought, oh no, are they smoking cigarettes? Are they making out? What's going on in the stairs? She said, there aren't teachers there watching the high schoolers walk up and down the steps. And I said, ma'am, with with all due respect, if we have kids who can't navigate two flights of stairs, uh, they probably don't need to be here. So it was changing that whole culture. I said, do we have uh, procedures in place for when a kid shows up with alcohol at a dance? And it was like, oh my gosh, ah. we never thought about this. So it was, it was a real education for the faculty. And and I remember going to Gloria uh, halfway through that first year, and I said, you know, I'm making all these decisions, and I feel like I should be running more stuff by you. She said, I hired you to run the high school, run the high school. If it's going to land on my desk, make sure I know about it. But just go ahead. Um, and I think there were the the other thing is the the community, the larger Uh, Dallas community saw this new, quote, Christian high school and didn't quite know what that meant. And we were at a meeting where one of the parents, conservative Christian parents said to Gloria, are we going to teach evolution or creation? And Gloria said, well, we're going to teach creation in chapel and in religion classes. But Dave's a biologist and he's creating the upper school. Dave, why don't you answer the other? And <laughs> I, was like, I don't remember what I said, but everybody said it was a, a good answer. But, I'm, sure, uh, I'm I was, sure it was. I
2: said, <laughs> if you you we don't mean,
1: teach these kids evolution and they go off to a mainstream college as a biology major, they're going to be
0: embarrassed. Yeah, that's interesting. Though, the mission statement at the time did have the word Christian in it. And uh, it it is interesting as an Episcopal school, you know, well, not to digress too much, but one can draw some very bright lines of distinction between what it means to be Episcopal and what it means to be Christian. And so I do think um, in this last decade or so, as we've become now with 24 different religious faiths uh, on campus, probably our Jewish faith uh, student population has been the largest growing sector of of student um, religious background in the last decade. You know, I I think we've um, come to settle in as an institution that's that's truly Episcopal and not Christian Uh, though in the complicated days in which we live, there are still those that are calling us, um, you you know, on our quote unquote Christian uh, identity. So it's a fascinating, fascinating story of of organizational culture, both from how the teachers were evolving to understand what a K through 12 school (laughs) looks like and and how the community looked at us as a quote unquote Christian or Episcopal uh, or Episcopal school. So, I mean, Dave, probably you know to wrap up this podcast season, there's probably no better voice to, to to speak to this. We've we've asked all of our um, guests to to explore it in some measure, but your your breadth of uh, independent school experience, both past and present, because you continue to consult nationally with schools like Parish, um, position you well to this. And I don't know, I'm biased. I think the Parish story is a one percenter in our industry, you know, because of Um, not the expansion stories. Lots of schools expand. Lots of schools are formed from mergers of past schools and become a new entity. But the fact that Parrish did it, the velocity in which it did it, the type of facility in which it went into to do it, um, uh, just make it a one percenter to me. And I don't don't know if I'm just my bias uh, shrouds some sense of broader perspective. I, I wonder how you hope our audience understand this uniqueness as one who has a national perspective on independent schools.
1: You know, many pre-K to eight schools dream about adding a high school, and I've actually had three or four approach me and say, hey, you did this once, we'd like you to do it for us. And I said, no, I think everybody has one of those in his tank, and I've already used it. But some can't tackle that because the demand isn't there, others don't have the space or the money or both and others have established high school options in the area that are sufficient. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I think the board and leadership of parish was both visionary and blessed. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't walk around seeing burning bushes on a regular basis, but I do believe that the expansion was divinely inspired. Uh, I was so caught up in it that I never really doubted. And I remember in that second year when we were hiring teachers for the third year, Mm -hmm. um, I was talking to a teacher and he said, you know, if I move my wife and myself to Dallas to work here and the upper school doesn't pan out, what will I do? And I just sat there in silence, and I thought, you know, I probably should have thought about that two years ago, but I just never doubted. We'll, we'll not only survive, but we will thrive. And and Parrish, uh, certainly has. So um, I, I just there were so many things that fell into place at the right time, and uh, you know. Uh, I, opportunity comes to lots of people, but if you're not prepared for it, it passes you by. And that board and Gloria and uh, the administrators who preceded me Mm -hmm. absolutely had the vision and the commitment. The parents were behind it. The kids were great. And uh, I, I think it is a 1% story. I agree with you.
0: Yeah. That theme of, um, of divine intervention or divine hand, can make some people uncomfortable, but it has come up in numerous of these conversations, just because the um, the juxtaposition of all those events and factors that you just described, even Gloria walking in, Charles, remember that painting that used to be in the lobby and you looked at the right, she saw the cross, you know, in that painting, it's a, now an apocryphal, but, you know, again, mostly true story, like, um, but it yeah. speaks to the notion that she walked in, she saw that painting and she's like, hmm, this is it. I don't know if you were on that visit, but that story is uh, is one that speaks to this notion of the divine hand to which Dave refers. Right. Well, a lot of
2: forces like that, and certainly that divine guidance had to happen, had to be present, or it would not have come together like
0: it did. Yeah, an amazing, an amazing story. Been so fun to so fun to explore this year with uh, with so many of the principal players in, in making it happen, and and in each of the conversations learning uh, something new, either substantive, uh, like the cultural changes that you all talked about today or Frederick Coates singing singing announcements. Like I've been enriched every t- every time. So I sure appreciate you all uh, coming back uh, coming back to visit with us. And uh, Dave, hope we'll see you in town uh, soon on one of your visits to see schools. And Charles, uh, as you come back in now as a family member, we'll look forward to seeing you next fall. That's nice, right. This, this is a real pleasure. Thank, nice. thank you both very much. All right. Thank you for listening to this edition of the From My Angle podcast and for being with us for this season of episodes. Together, we explored how we as people and as members of communities could reconnect as the pandemic loosened its grip. We also explored how the world of education might reset following the disruption of the pandemic. And along the way, we embraced the remarkable history of parish a school that throughout its 50 years has continually connected people to community and ambitiously reset its aspirations to achieve mighty goals. We wish our parish families and other listeners a successful conclusion to this busy school year and a restful summer break. All the best, everyone.